Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we uh, gather together today <clears throat> before a text that is probably one of the most countercultural texts in the Bible at this time, Lord, we pray for your grace and mercy to be upon us as we go through this text. Lord, there are things in here that are, are difficult, that are not easy to hear. There are things that are um, going to trigger many people. But I trust, Lord, that you, through your word, will do a good work. That you have a plan for each one of us today in this place as we hear this word, Lord. You are good. You, you do not condemn us, Lord. You are gracious and merciful. And you've given us this truth to help us to grow in our relationship with you. Lord, I confess that I feel uneasy about preaching today. I feel, uh, yeah, just aware. I'm just aware that this is a hard text to go through, Lord. But I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and that you would use me in accordance with your will, Lord. And we just pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, recently, um, my children have become quite interested in listening to music. Uh, it was only, I think, a few nights ago when one of my sons said to me, Dad, when, I, when can I get my first 
smartphone or smartwatch to listen to the music that I, I want to listen to. Uh, and get this, he, he spent the whole of yesterday afternoon uh, lying in a hammock in our garden listening to music. It's an amazing life to be a child. <laughs> but um, it, it's got me thinking, really, as I've been pre preparing for this text, that when I was their age, when I was sort of 8, 9, 10, most of the um, music that I listened to was about sexual relationships. Uh, there was a, a song at the time by this um, American pop band called Salt and Pepper called Let's Talk About Sex. And I must say with embarrassment that I used to walk around my house by myself and also in front of my family singing that song, not having any idea what I was talking about or what I was doing. But you see, I bring that up because at that time in the 1980s and 1990s, there was all these songs coming out that were talking about sexual relationships, and it really was a reflection of a cultural change that had happened in the Western culture in the, in the previous 30 years. Uh, in the 1960s, when John Brown was born, um, uh, there was the um, sexual revolution, where people just started to display themselves in sexual relationships in whatever way they wanted, whenever they wanted, and however they wanted, and they didn't have any rules or obligations, and people were not concerned, really, about the consequences of that. And it kind of led to all these songs being written in the 1980s and 1990s about sex. And it really laid the foundation, really, for the culture that we live in today a culture of sexual immorality and, uh, and self-exaltation. Now, in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9, it says the following. It says, What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. And this verse teaches that what goes around comes around. And I say this because... The culture that we live in today was exactly the same culture that was there in Corinth when Paul planted a church. It was a, it was a culture of gross sexual immorality. I mean, we've heard last week from John about the pagan temples and there used to be sexual immorality that took place in them. But also Corinth was a port city and it was well known at the time that sailors would come from all over the world to Corinth to have their sexual desires satisfied. It was a real culture of sexual immorality. But also, it was a culture of self-exaltation, self-promotion, self-centeredness. There were people in Corinth who used to have pillars erected for themselves just to get themselves up the social status. And this was the culture that Paul planted his church in. And in this culture, Paul planted the church and people began to hear the gospel. People began to turn from their sin. They began to believe in Jesus and they got saved and they were born again. And it was very natural at the time for these new believers to ask questions about their relationship with God in the midst of their culture. How do I... Uh, 
relate to sexual immorality as a Christian? How do I relate to my identity as a Christian? And so they had all these questions, and they wrote a letter to Paul, which we don't have a copy of, and Paul wrote back to them in 1 Corinthians and was, is beginning, from the beginning of chapter 7, to answer some of these questions that they had. And so today, in our text, we're going to see Paul answer three questions. And if you look at your little outline, they're there. In verses um, 2 to 9 in our first section, we're going to see the question uh, asked and answered, shall I get married? Uh, In our second section, in verses 10 to 16, we're going to see the question asked and answered, shall I get divorced? And then the last question is in verses 17 to 24, where Paul's going to answer the question, what's my identity as a Christian. Now, all of these questions have been valid for Christians down the centuries, but they are particularly valid for us today in the 21st century. We live in a culture that has a lot of confusion about marriage. It has a lot of confusion, I would say, about divorce, and it has a lot of confusion about identity issues. So these questions that Paul's going to answer today are vital for us to know what the Lord says about them for us to be able to interact with the culture around us. So, before we get into our text, I just want to say a few introductory remarks about the text, because I think it will help us to understand what Paul's saying. And you should see it come up on the screen as we go through each remark. And the first thing to say is that in this text, we're going to see Paul, uh, on the one hand, give commands... He's going to give commands about relationships. He's going to give commands about identities. And he's also going to give opinions. Now, a lot of clever Christians who are quite liberal would say that because Paul gives his opinions in this text, that we have the choice to follow them or not. And I would put it to you that that's not the right way to look at it. We should try our very best to follow Paul's opinions for these two reasons. In 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16, Peter equates Paul's writing as Scripture. And we know in 2 Timothy that Scripture is God-breathed. So Paul's opinions are God-breathed. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, we see that Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so as Paul is giving these opinions about relationships and about identity issues, he is imitating Christ. And so you could say that he's imitating Christ's opinions about these things. So I would say that when you see Paul say, this is just an opinion, I'm not commanding you to do this, it's still very worthy to be followed. The second thing to say is that when Paul wrote this book, he was single. And we see that come out in verse 8 where it says, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them if they remain even as I am. So Paul was single when he wrote this. Now there's debates about how he he was single. Had he been single all the time? Had he been married before and got divorced? My personal conviction is that he had been married and his wife had died and he was actually a widower. So that he had both experience in being married and being single and was very uh, qualified to say these things that he's going to say. 
And then also, thirdly, Paul has a very high regard for singleness. And we see that come out in verse 1, where he says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, which means it's a, the actual word for good there is beautiful. He's saying it's a beautiful, beautiful thing for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman. And therefore, it's a beautiful thing for a man not to be married. Now, I think John will go into why this is a bit more next week. But I just want to say to you single people in, in here, you are in a very highly regarded position. You might have come here today and, and think, okay, this is a text about marriage and divorce. It's got nothing to do with me. It does have something to do with you. And God would say to you, you are loved, even though you're single. You're not a second-class Christian, even though you're single. You're not, not going to be used by God because you're single. God has a very high regard for singleness. The full thing to say, is we, before we get into our text, is that when we think about uh, marriages, when we think about marital relationships, when we think about identity issues, it's very important that we discern all those things based on the ultimate marriage. And the scripture speaks of this ultimate marriage between Jesus, the perfect bridegroom, and the church, the redeemed church. The scriptures speak of the fact that when Jesus was alive, when he was living a perfect life, when he died on the cross for our sins, when he rose again from the dead on the third day, he was purchasing through his blood the church. The scriptures speak of the reality that when Jesus ascended into heaven, when he gave his spirit at Pentecost, he united himself to his church forever. And so when we think about marriage, when, when we think about identities, we have to have in our mind that this marriage between Jesus and the church has to be how we discern these things, how we weigh these things. And then lastly... By way of introduction, I just want to say that some of the, of the things I'm going to say today are going to be very difficult for people. They're going to trigger people. They're going to make you possibly hate me or maybe throw daggers at me. I don't know. But I just want to say to you that my heart in saying these things is not to, to offend you for offense's sake. My heart is to just share what God has written here, and let him, through his spirit, do the work that he wants to do. So please have mercy on me as we go through this text. So, let's go to our first section in verses 2 to 9, where Paul asks the question, or answers the question, shall I get married? Now, He's already answered this in the negative because he said it's good for a man not to touch a woman. So in one sense, he's already said it's good not to get married. But he then goes on in verse 2 and he says, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. And so we see in this text that what Paul's saying, or what the Spirit is saying, is that God wants to take marriage 
and he wants to use marriage to protect people from sexual immorality. Now, John went over this last week, but I think it's important for us to be reminded, what is sexual immorality? Well, sexual immorality is any sexual act that occurs outside of the confines of what God says is good and is right. And the Bible's very clear that that sex is only good and only right between one man and one woman in marriage for life. And by the way, I should say as a side note that the Bible also says that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. And so sexual immorality is where there are acts that occur outside of this uh, commandment and outside of this uh, defined kind of boundary. And one of the things that's uh, noted in this word sexual immorality is the idea of idolatry. And so you have this sense here that when someone is involved in sexual immorality, they are involved in idol worship. And most of the time that idol worship is the worship of self, it's the worship of our own sexual desires, our own sexual lusts. And so they, these two things are very closely linked together, sexual immorality and idolatry. And we have to see, brothers and sisters, that sexual immorality is bad. It is bad because it is terrible for ourselves. John spoke about this last week, that when we sin sexually, we sin against ourselves It's also bad because it destroys relationships. It destroys marriages. It destroys children's lives. And also sexual immorality is bad because it destroys societies. In Romans chapter 1, you see that very clearly seen, that as society gets worse because of increase in sin, that one of the sins that's rife is sexual immorality. And you see, God knows this. God knows that sexual immorality is bad. And so in his grace, he uses marriage to protect us against that. And so what we're going to see as we go through these next three verses is how God uses marriage to protect us against sexual immorality. And it's important to say that what he's going to say is radical. And it's radical because in this culture that he was writing to, it was a very patriarchal culture where the man was kind of at the top and women were down here and the man had the say-so in everything, in sex, in marriage, in family life. And women were very um, looked down upon. They had no say, they had no opinion. So when Paul or when whoever read this out before the congregation I can just imagine the men in the congregation, their jaws going down in shock about what's being said here because it was very radical at the time. And it's important for us to see, brothers and sisters, that sometimes we need radical teaching from the Bible. We can often drift off in a direction that God doesn't want us to go in and sometimes it requires a radical teaching from this word to draw us back to him or a radical rebuke from a friend, or radical love from a friend. So when we hear radical teaching from the scriptures, we should not be, oh, I don't want to hear this, because it's at those times that God might be truly doing something. So what does he say? 
He says there in verse 3, as he begins to show us how marriage protects us from sexual immorality, it says, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Now this verse teaches us, brothers and sisters, that men and women have sexual needs or physical, emotional, sexual needs. This is what this, con- this is, fits with the context of what Paul's saying. And these sexual, physical and emotional needs are a desire to be physically intimate with someone or a desire to be emotionally intimate with someone. I'm not speaking here about the kind of horrible, crude, lustful kind of desires that we can have, but we all have a natural desire to be physically intimate, and that's because we have sexual hormones running around our body. And we have to see that that's been created by God. That is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But the problem is, is that in our sin, what we can do is we can respond to those desires and we can sin sexually, in sexual immorality. We can satisfy those good desires in a wrong way. But in a biblical marriage, that's not how it should be. In a biblical marriage, what should happen is, is that the husband should render to his wife the affection due her. And likewise, also the wife to her husband. And that means that in biblical marriages, we should be um, rendering or giving up of ourselves to meet the sexual needs of our spouse. This is what God's commanding here. And so I would say to you married people in here this morning, do you know the sexual, physical and emotional needs of your spouse? If you do, that's great. You're walking, hopefully, in this verse. But if you don't, you need to find out. Because God is saying that you are called in marriage to render to your spouse those sexual needs. He then goes on in verse 4 and he says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, uh, when I was reading this, I was thinking, if there's any verse in the Bible that an atheist could look at or a secularist could look at and say, look, the Bible teaches abuse, it would be this one. Because when you read it, it's saying that someone else has authority over our body. And the thing is, is that as Christians, we can read this verse and we can interpret it wrongly. And I have to say, men, this is us a lot of the time. We can look at this verse and think, wow, great, I have authority over my wife's body, she should do whatever I want in a sexual sense. But this is not what this verse is teaching. This verse is teaching primarily that our spouse has authority over our own body. What does that mean? Well, it means that whatever sexual desires you have, whatever sexual wants you have within your marriage your spouse has authority over those things. And your spouse has the authority to judge those things, to weigh those things, and to discern those things. This is what it's teaching. 
And so the way this would play out in a marriage would be something like this, that, you know, if you've got a sexual desire that maybe you haven't had before in your marriage, this verse is teaching that we should go to our spouse and we should talk about it. And we should say, look, you know, I've got this desire. What do you think about this? Do you think this is, this is sinful? Do you think it's wrong for me to, to think this? How would you see this? How do you discern this? And the result of that, when we do that, is marriages that are equal, marriages that are protective, marriages that are loving, marriages that there's no abuse, marriages that are fruitful. But I want you to see very clearly in verses 3 and 4 what Paul's doing. He's taking the emphasis away from self and he's putting the emphasis on our spouse. So he's taken us from self-centeredness to self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice in rendering to our spouse their affectionate need and self-sacrifice in allowing our spouse to have authority over our body. And this is the first way that God protects us in marriage from sexual immorality. He takes the self-centeredness of sexual immorality and he changes, it in, he changes us to become self-sacrificial. And therefore, we're protected from the horribleness of sexual immorality. In verse 5, he says, Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, this verse is teaching, brothers and sisters, that in a biblical marriage, in a healthy biblical marriage, sex should be happening on a regular basis. And that if there's a, a, ever a time where it isn't happening, that should be because both husband and wife have talked about it, and in mutual consent, they've said, you know what, we're going to give ourselves to prayer and fasting for a time, and we're not going to have sexual relations. It doesn't say here specifically about what the fasting and prayer is about, but that's not, I think, Paul's main point here. Paul's main point is that healthy biblical marriages have openness, they have mutual consent, and they have active service so that sex is happening on a regular basis. And when this isn't happening in our marriages, Satan can be involved. It says there, come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This should not surprise us because Satan loves things being kept in the dark. Satan loves things being kept hidden, that there's secrets. Satan loves marriages where one partner abuses the other partner. Satan loves marriages where no sex is happening because he knows that in that sort of situation, God can be undermined and the gospel can be undermined and that marriages can fall apart and that's his aim because Satan hates Christian marriages and we'll find out why later on and I just want to say to you brothers and sisters in this place if your marriage is in that place this morning if your marriage has abstinence from sex for no real apparent reason if your marriage has secrets or 
there are things kept hidden or things are not talked about openly or there's a sense of no mutual consent in sexual relationships, then please seek help. Please come to a brother or sister and ask for help because this is not what God's called us to. God has called us to marriages of openness, of clarity, of mutual consent, of active service. And when we walk in that, we're protected from sexual immorality because one of the foundations of sexual immorality is secrets and things kept in the dark, things not being talked about. And when we walk in these things that's been talked about here, we don't do that and we're protected from sexual immorality again. Now, I know, brothers and sisters, that some of these things are hard. It's not natural for us to be open. It's not natural for us to talk about sex. It's not natural for us to confess our desires to each other in a marriage. It's not natural for us to serve our spouse in this way. But God's Spirit can produce this in us. And he wants to produce this in us. He wants to bless us in this way. Brothers and sisters, you may remember I said at the beginning of this uh, message, that song in the 1980s and 90s by Salt and Pepper, Let's Talk About Sex. So the homework I have for you married couples this week is to go home and talk about sex. Talk about where you're at. Talk about are you rendering to each other your sexual needs? Are you submitting to one another's authority over your bodies? Are you having sex on a regular basis and abstaining in the confines of what Scripture says? Because God wants to use our sexual relationships and our marriages to protect us from the damaging effect of sexual immorality. And when we walk in these things, that will be the case. So he goes on in verse 6, 7, 8, and 9, and he ends this section. And he says there, but I say this in verse 6 as a concession, not a commandment. Now, Paul, his heart in saying this is that he doesn't want these things to be followed about marriage just without any thought. His, his, um, he knows that when, he he when people hear this in the churches if there are single people who are struggling with sexually immoral desires or sexual desires naturally, they might think, okay, right, the best thing for me to do is get married. I'm just going to choose any Tom, Dick and Harry and that's it. You'll, you'll be the one on the first row. And Paul's like, no, don't do that. Listen to these things. Let them set in and pray about what God would have for you as an individual. Because Paul's heart was going on from verse 6, that some of these people who heard these things would remain single. Because he says there, for I wish that all men were even as myself, single. But then he says, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. And what this means is, is that Paul knew that when people stop and they pray about these things, that some people would have revealed to themselves 
that they were, they were going to be single, and some people would have revealed to themselves that they were going to be married. And the way that people would have that revealed through prayer would be, unfortunately, that people would realise that they have a lack of self-control. And those people who have a lack of self-control in sexual desires, he says in verse 9, that those people should pursue marriage. He says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. But there were also going to be people who prayed in response to these things. There were going to be people who learnt through prayer and through the power of the Spirit to be able to live lives having control over their sexual desires and that they were going to live single lives for the glory of God. They were going to be called to celibacy. And Paul's heart, really, in these last few verses in this section is to say to single people, you single, pe single people in here, that single people should not allow their physical sexual desires to control what they do in the future. They should let God control and decide what their future is. And we can trust God to do that because God is a good God and he has good plans for us whether we're called to marriage or we're called to singleness. Listen to these verses in Jeremiah and Psalm, Psalms. In Jeremiah 29, verse 11, this is a very famous verse. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And then in Psalm 139, verses 16 and 17, it says, Your eyes saw my unformed body, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. This is your God. Your God has good plans for you. Your God has marked out all the days for you, even before any of them existed. And whether you're called to be single or you're called to be married, there's good plans ahead. Amen? So we see here in this first section that God answers this question through Paul, shall I get married? Well, the answer is yes, you should get married unless you're called to be a celibate. So he goes on to this, the second section and the second question in verses 10 to 16, which is the one that I'm concerned about. <laughs> and this question is, shall I get divorced? And he says in verses 10 and 11, Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. So he, he begins this uh, answer of this question with quite a punchy few verses. And what I want you to notice about these first two verses is in verse 10 it says that this is a command. And it, he says very clearly, it's not my command, it's the Lord's command. And so when we hear that, we must take very seriously what is being said. But then also in verses 10 and 11, there's two words that I want you to see that are important. The first word is depart, and the second word is divorce. And these two words are different Greek words, but they kind of mean the same thing, but they emphasize different aspects of this same thing. 
And what these two uh, words uh, represent is this idea of something that's been joined together as one. And this idea that this, this thing that's been joined together as one is beginning to separate and is separating into two again. And the depart aspect represents the physical nature of that, of this one thing being uh, divided again into two. And the word divorce represents the kind of non-physical heart issues that you would have with those two, with that one thing dividing into two again. And we have to take these words seriously because we're going to see them throughout this section. So what does he say there? He says very clearly, a wife is not to depart from her husband. And then in verse 11 it says, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And it's interesting there in verse 11, it says, but even if she does depart. And so the idea here is that in this patriarchal culture, there was quite a lot of abuse that took place. The, 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 the males particularly would abuse their wives. And so it was actually a safe thing for the woman to depart from her husband. But she should still remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. So I think we can all agree in these first two verses that the idea of departing, or husbands and wives departing each other in a Christian sense, I must make that very clear, in a Christian sense, the idea of uh, uh, a husband and a wife departing or divorcing is not something that's looked very highly upon. It's not something that we should pat ourselves on the back for and say, this is a good thing. Now, this is obviously a very isolated verse in the scriptures. So what I want to do is show you two other places where this teaching is kind of similar to Paul and to Jesus. So you'll see up on there, uh, Romans chapter 7. You don't need to turn there. I'll turn there for you. Uh, in verses um, 2 to 3, I'm just going to read that. This is Paul speaking. He says, For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law so that she's no adulteress, though she has married another man. And so Paul introduces here in this, these verses this idea that when we get married under the law of God, we are bound to that person for life. And the only way that we can be unbound from that person is through death. And there's this idea here that, or he introduces for the first time, this idea that when we divorce, when we don't heed to that reality, we are committing adultery. So Paul seems to be very consistent that his idea of divorce is not a good one. But what about Jesus? Well, if you would turn with me to Matthew 19, and I just want to read a few verses from Matthew 19 to show you what Jesus' opinion was of divorce. I'm just going to read from verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? 
And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His, his disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. And so in this little section of scripture, Jesus, I think, makes it very plainly clear that from the beginning of the world, God's plan was that men and women would get married and that there was an assumption that they would stay together and that marriage would be for life. But because of the hardness of the Jews, God in the law permitted divorce because of that hardness. It wasn't a good thing in his eyes. But then Jesus says, I, the one who has come to fulfill the law, tell you something more. I tell you that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And so Jesus, I have to say, brothers and sisters, is consistent with Paul in this reality that he does not have a high regard for divorce. Jesus makes it very clear, I think, here, that there are, there's only very limited circumstances where divorce is permitted, but even then, it's not the best option. Why is that? Let's ask the question, why is divorce, in God's eyes, in Jesus' eyes, and in Paul's eyes, not a good thing? Why does it say in Malachi 2, Verse 16a, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence. Why is that? Well, it has everything to do with how God relates to human beings in what we call covenant. A covenant, brothers and sisters, is the way that God has related to human beings since the beginning, beginning of the world. A covenant is where God sets up a contract between himself and man and that contract is how he's going to relate to them and he sets the terms and he sets the rules. And so in the Old Testament, you have the Old Covenant and in the Old Covenant, God called ethnic Israel into covenant. He called them out of Egypt, he saved them out of Egypt, he brought them into the desert he called them to be his people and that he was going to be their God and he gave them the law and the law was given to them as a way of life. But there were consequences to them not following the law. If they followed the law, they would be blessed and if they didn't follow the law, they would be cursed. And so that's how that covenant worked and that covenant was seen as a marriage. Yahweh was the husband and Israel was the wife. And then we come into the new covenant in the New Testament period and it all changes. 
And so now in the, in the new covenant, God calls all people, Jew and Gentile, into covenant on the basis of the merits of Jesus, on the basis of his life, his death, and his resurrection. And all we need to do is turn from our sin, believe in what Jesus has done for us, we have the Spirit dwelling within us, and we are part of that new covenant. We are part of that new covenant people. We have the Spirit in us working and changing us and making us more like Christ. And we don't have to follow the law anymore to be right with God because Jesus has fulfilled it for us. Hallelujah. All we're called to do, listen, and this is very important, we are called to be reflections of God. We are called to be reflections of Jesus. A good way of thinking about this is the analogy that I thought of this week, where the old covenant is a bit like looking in a mirror that constantly gets cracks. And the, the person in front of the mirror is trying to fix the cracks, and you can't fix it fully, and then another crack uh, uh, happens, and you try and fix that one, and you fail, and you can never get a full picture of what you're looking at in the mirror. But in the new covenant, you are standing in front of a perfect mirror. And you're called to just stand there and grow to see what's being reflected back and you see Jesus more and you stand there and you reflect Jesus and you grow in being that reflection to him. And this is none more so than in our marriages. In Ephesians 5, it talks about this reality that the marriage that Jesus has with the church is to be reflected by our marriages here on this earth between man and woman. And so when we enter into marriage before God, we are agreeing with God that we are going to be that reflection. We're going to reflect his relationship that Jesus has with the church. And so when we divorce as Christians, what we're doing is we're saying, we're throwing that away. We're throwing the reflection away. We're dishonoring God and we are dishonoring the gospel. That is why divorce is wrong. Divorce is, is uh, not wrong primarily because of financial reasons or because of social reasons. It is wrong for us as Christians because of salvific, redemptive reasons. This is why divorce is wrong, brothers and sisters. Now, I know what I'm saying is probably hurting quite a lot of people. I know that there are Christians who've got divorced for whatever reason. And I know that what I'm saying may really be hurting you, triggering you. But this is what the text is saying. But there is grace. God is gracious. He is merciful. He knows your situation. He knows your history. And I believe that whatever that history is, if you truly believe in him, he will use it for good. But if you're in this place this morning, brothers and sisters, and you're married and you're Christians and you are struggling, maybe you're considering divorce. Please can you seek help. Please can you come to one of us to pray, to have counsel, because God wants to use your marriage, however bad it's got, to be a reflection of the marriage that Jesus has with his church. So he goes on 
in verse 12. I'm just going to go back to 1 Corinthians. So if you turn back there with me to 1 Corinthians 7 again. And he says there in verse 12, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. Now, I find this amazing how Paul then, he's gone from this really heavy topic and he, he then goes on to other people that are in the church. And what I love about this is Paul's recognition that not everybody has this kind of amazing kind of experience of uh, courting and then they get married to a Christian and then they have a Christian marriage. There are some brothers and sisters in the church who are married to non Christians, and Paul wants to address them and address their situation. And I find this an amazing pastoral thing because, like Paul, we should be people who are willing to engage with other people who are different to us, who have different circumstances to us, who are not like us. This is the heart of what it means to be brothers and sisters. And this is what Paul's doing here. He's, ad he's addressing people that are in different circumstances. And what he's addressing here is this reality of a believer being married to an unbeliever. And he says there that if uh, any brother has a wife who does not believe and she's willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a, and a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Now, it's interesting because the idea behind this is that Paul may be addressing people who've got saved and they want to get divorced because they don't want to be married to an unbeliever. And they want to get married to someone who believes in Jesus and wants to be uh, the same as them and walk with them in the same kind of faith. And Paul's addressing, I think, these people here. And he's saying, look, if you're married to an unbeliever and they are willing to stay with you, you should not divorce that person. Why? Well, in verse 14 it says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. And so before I get into this, the nitty-gritty of what this text is saying, about why it's important that these people don't get divorced, we have to, I think, acknowledge the reality of the blessing that it is for an unbeliever to be married to a believer. For the blessing that it is for children to grow up in families where one of their parents is a believer. That believing uh, spouse or parent will be praying for their unbelieving spouse or children. They'll be trying to tell them about Jesus. They'll be trying to uh, get them to come along to church. They are in a truly blessed position and they're blessed because they could potentially be around the church of Jesus Christ, and the church of Jesus Christ is made up of amazing people. Does anyone feel shocked me saying that? That we're amazing people? Well, let me read you a verse that tells you that we are amazing people. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9a, it says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. We are special. We are amazing. 
not because of ourselves, but because of Jesus and because of, of what he has done for us and because of his spirit that dwells in us. And so when unbelieving people come into the church, they are around people that are being changed from glory to glory, being changed into being more like Christ, expressing his love. They are forgiving in their relationships. They are reconciliatory in their relationships. They want to be around you. They want to encourage you. It's truly a blessed thing for an unbeliever to be around the church. It says here that the unbelieving husband and wife is sanctified in this marriage. And they're sanctified because they're set apart to hear the gospel. And if they weren't married to this believer, it is likely that they would not hear the gospel. That's why it says they're sanctified there. It then speaks of the children where it says, otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Does anyone think their children are holy? <laughs> I certainly don't. But anyway, the, the word for holy here is this idea of righteousness. Speaking of the fact that children in this situation where they have a, a believing parent and they're married to an unbelieving parent, these children are righteous. Now, when you look at this Greek term, it's, there's a lot of debate about it because it's not clear in the text whether this is an active righteousness or a passive righteousness. Our, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters would like it to be an active righteousness because what they believe is that they believe that when children are in a family where one of their parents are believers, that those children enter into the covenant people of God and that they are uh, righteous because they kind of take on some of the righteousness of that covenant people. Our Baptist brothers and sisters would like it to be a passive righteousness because they don't believe that. What they believe is that when children are in a family where one of their parents are believers, that they come under the influence of that parent, they're submitted to their authority, they're submitted to their teaching, and in a passive kind of way, they live holy, righteous lives compared to other children because they have the influence of the scriptures. I tend to favour the Baptist position on that, but what's non-debatable is that children in families where one of their parents is a believer is a fantastic and amazing thing. And because of these things, Paul's saying don't divorce the unbelieving spouse, because if you do, they might not hear the gospel, and your children may become confused, and they may not be able to hear the gospel or see the gospel as much. He then goes on uh, in verses 15 and 16 to talk about another situation. And this is different to the one that he's just talked about. And this is where a believer is married to an unbeliever who just does not want to be around them anymore. This unbeliever wants to leave doesn't want to hear about Jesus, doesn't want to hear about the gospel. And there's this sense in, this, in these verses that the believing uh, spouse uh, is trying their hardest to keep this unbeliever in the marriage because they might think, oh, if, this, if, if, if my unbelieving spouse leaves, then it's going to be really bad 
It's going to be a bad reflection upon me. I don't want that to happen. I don't want my children to be affected. So they're trying really hard to keep this unbeliever in their marriage, and it might be causing lots of problems, lots of arguments, lots of strife. They might even compromise their witness. And Paul is saying in these verses, brother, sister, don't do that. If they want to leave, let them go. Why? Because in verse 16, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul's saying to this believing spouse here, look, you don't know what the eternal destiny is of your unbelieving spouse. You don't know whether you could speak to them for the next 30 years and they're not going to respond to the gospel. You don't know that. The only person that knows that is God. He is the only one that knows the eternal destinies of people. He is the the only one that can draw people to himself. And so he's saying to this believing person here, look, let the person go. You're not under bondage in this circumstance, but you're called to peace. When brothers and sisters are in this very painful circumstance where they have a an unbelieving spouse that just doesn't want to be around them anymore, wants to divorce them, wants to depart. Paul wants to make it really clear here, you're called to peace. You're called to the peace of knowing God's sovereign will over your lives, that he has a good plan for you. He's going to use these circumstances for good. You're called to the peace of the gospel, the peace of knowing that Jesus loves you, that you're married to Jesus. Even though this spouse of yours wants to leave you, you have an ultimate spouse, and that spouse is Jesus, who will never leave you. So Paul's saying, let them go. It's hard, but let them go. And Jesus taught, I would say, something similar in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. When he said the following, he said, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. And the context of this verse in Matthew 7 is that Jesus is talking about not making judgments, not making judgments about our brothers or our sisters, because often when we make judgments about our brothers and sisters, we are hypocrites. We have the same sort of problems that they have, and we shouldn't judge them for that. But right at the end, he he brings this verse in, and I think he makes clear here that we can make judgments when it comes to unbelievers sometimes. When we are telling them the gospel and they're not responding, when when we're doing good things and we're trying to influence them in a good way and they just will not have it, they just reject it over and over again, Jesus, in that circumstance, would say to us sometimes, let that person go. Don't keep doing what you're doing. And I think here in this verse, in verses 15 and 16, this is a, a, an example of that. So in this second section, Paul has answered the question, shall I get divorced? And I would say that the answer to that question that he's brought out here is that Christians should never pursue divorce. There are certain circumstances where Divorce is allowed amongst Christians, but it should be never pursued. 
And it should never be pursued because if we walk in divorce willfully for the wrong reason, we are dishonoring God, we are dishonoring the gospel, and we're dishonoring the calling that we have to be a reflection of the relationship between Jesus and his church. So let's go on to our third and final section where Paul answers the question, what's my identity as a Christian? In verse 17 he says, but as God has just distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Now, before we get into what this verse means, I want you to think about what it would feel like if next Sunday, when we came to church, there was a queue of 3,000 people out that door trying to come into church. Wouldn't that be amazing? We're like, wow, this is incredible. There's all these people coming to church. They've got saved. They want to come into church. Um, I think we'd probably, you know, run out of room, but it would be an amazing thing. But I then want you to think about what it would feel like for someone in that queue who's a new believer, they're a baby Christian, they've, they've, got, they've had no Bible teaching, they've had no discipleship, uh, they have no Christian friends. And they're in that queue and they're looking around the people in that queue and there may be different people to them, maybe different ages, maybe different social classes, maybe different ethnicities, and they might be tempted to think, wow, there's a lot of different people here. What does it mean for me to be a Christian? Do I have to be like them? Do I have to look like them? Do I have to say the same things? Do I have to be like them? And I bring this up because this is exactly what was happening in the Corinthian church. And this is what Paul is addressing here. These Corinthian believers had been through an incredible change internally. They'd gone from death to life, from darkness to light. They'd gone from being unrepentant and unbelieving to being repentant and believing and being born-again Christians. But I cannot underestimate the social um, uh, carnage that was happening in Corinth. The gospel came and was preached by Paul and loads of different people got saved. Jews, Gentiles, rich, poor, Free, freedmen, slaves, loads of different people. And these Corinthian believers, what they were struggling with they, as they were looking around was, I'm a newly born again Christian, but what do, I, what, what, what do I have to be like to be a Christian? Do I have to be Jewish? Do I have to be like a Gentile? Do I have to be rich? Do I have to be poor? Do I have to be a slave? Do I have to be free? These were the questions that were being asked by these believers, and Paul wants to address that in this last, last section. And it's so important that he addresses it. He says, that I want this ordained in all the churches. And we'll see why that's the case a little bit later on. But he starts off and says in verse 17, but as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And what he is saying in this verse is that When people get saved, they get saved in different circumstances. Some people get saved when they're young. Some people get saved when they're old. Some people get saved rich. Some people get saved when they're poor. Some people get saved educated or non-educated. 
People get called by God in different circumstances. And Paul's saying, whatever circumstance you were saved in, remain in that circumstance. He says that in um, verse 17. He says that again in verse 20. And then he says it again in verse 24. It's a really important thing for Paul. He wants to make it very clear. Stay where you were called. Why is that? Well, he begins to unpack why in verses 18, 19, 21, and 22, where he says, Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. So it, it, it may have been in, in the Corinthian church that some people were wrestling with this whole circumcision thing. Do I need to get circumcised to be a Christian? If I'm circumcised as a Jew, do I now need to become uncircumcised to be a Christian? And Paul's saying, none of that matters circumcision doesn't matter, uncircumcision doesn't matter, but what matters is keeping the commandments of God. And in saying that, what he's saying is he's trying to take their focus away from the external and onto the internal change that's happened in their heart. To follow the commandments of God, we have to have an internal change in our heart. We have to have hearts that are taken from being stone to flesh. We have to have hearts that have the, uh, the law written on them. And we have to allow the Spirit to work in our hearts so that we walk in the law. As it says, the, the law is fulfilled and is established by faith. It's an internal thing. Following the commandments of God is not made easier by circumcision or by uncircumcision. In verse 21, he says, Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. So again, there's this reality that in the church there may have been some issues about status. Some people might have thought, well, because I'm a slave, I have to be free now if I'm going to be a Christian. Or maybe some freed people thought, well, maybe I need to become a slave to be a real Christian. And Paul's saying... Don't think about that. Don't get concerned about that. That's not the main deal. If you are a slave and you can become free, then fine, use it. But if you can't, don't worry about it. Why? Because if you are a slave, you are the Lord's freed man. You are freed from the power, the penalty, and in the future, from the presence of sin. Hallelujah. You are freed from the fear of death, even though you're a slave. He says that if you are a freedman, you are Christ's slave. You are a slave now not to unrighteousness, but to righteousness. You are a slave because Jesus is now your master and Lord of all things. Again, these are internal things. These are things that are not defined by the external if we are Christ, and it's an internal thing, we have to have the Spirit of Christ in us. And so Paul's emphasis here, brothers and sisters, is to take their vision from the external to the internal. He's saying, look, guys, don't you realize what's happened to you? 
Don't you realize the amazing change that's occurred in your life? You were dead in sins and transgressions. You've been made alive in Christ. You now can recognize sin, even when you, even when you couldn't in the past. You now don't want to be sinful. You want to walk in righteousness. You now have the spirit of the living God in you who's changing your heart and making you more like Jesus. This is the most important thing. It's not about whether you're rich or poor or a slave or a freedman or educated or non-educated. Every Christian is in the same boat internally. Every Christian is having that same process happen. And that's such an amazing thing. It's such an incredible thing. When I was uh, 20 years old, I had the pleasure of watching my wife get baptised in a small Baptist church in London. And when she got baptised, she had this this song going on in the background. Um, You'll probably know it. My Jesus, my Saviour, Lord, there is none like you. And one of the uh, lines in that song is, nothing compares to the promise that I have in you. And this is what Paul's saying here. Nothing compares to the promise that you have in Jesus. What he's done to you internally, nothing compares to that. Don't worry about your external circumstances. Don't try and change your external circumstances to be more Christian. You have everything. Now, you've been given everything in your heart. I would ask you the question this morning, brothers and sisters, as we come to a close. Is there there anything in your life that compares to the promise that you have in Christ? Are you living a life that says, nothing compares to the promise I have in Jesus? Because that's where God wants you to be. That's where he wants you to be all the days of your life and in in an ever-growing way and in an ever-joyous way that nothing compares to Christ. Christ is in all and through all. He is the head of the church. He is what we are going to in eternity. Heaven will be heaven because Jesus is there. Heaven will not be heaven because we're going to be rich or have hair again like John or something else. It's going to be amazing because Jesus is going to be there. He says in verse 23, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. One of the things that was happening at the time uh, in the church's um, life in the first century was that there were people or heretics who were going around saying, that to be a Christian, you have to have Jesus plus this other thing. And the, the main thing that was being taught was Jesus plus circumcision and following the law. And this is exactly what Paul is trying to counter in these verses. And this is why he would have this ordained in all the churches, because when we have the right idea about our Christian identity being internal and not external, we can counter heretics that say to us no it is external you have to believe in Jesus and add something else to be a Christian I want to say to you today brother or sister do not become a slave of men realize that you were bought at a price do you realize how much it cost Jesus to have you saved it cost him everything 
It cost him the glory of heaven. It cost him the honor of an honorable birth. It cost him his friends. It cost him his body being broken and his blood being shed. It cost him death to have you come back to him. And in thinking about that, whenever someone says to you, listen to me carefully, that you need to do something extra to be saved, extra to believing in Jesus and following him, reject that. Walk away from it. And don't become a slave to men again. So we've seen in our text today, brothers and sisters, these three questions answered. Shall I get married? Shall I get divorced? What's my identity as a Christian? And I would say to you that the world will tell you and will try and provide you with the answers to these questions. And those answers will have nothing to do with Jesus. And, I will, and, and if you follow the world, it will just lead to pain and it will lead to bondage. But in this text, we see Jesus giving us the, the, the defining principles of relationships and our identities. And, it, and if you follow him, if you follow what he says here, it will lead to joy and it will lead to peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is a double-edged sword. And it cuts us, Lord, between spirit and soul. We thank you that it does that because we need that, Lord. We all need to hear cutting truth because we fall short, Lord. We're not where we are meant to be. You've saved us. You've brought us into a relationship with yourself. You're growing us, but we are nowhere near where we're going to be in the future. And you use your words to mold us and to change us to be more like Christ. And I just pray for my brothers and sisters in here and whoever may be listening online, that they would take this truth and they would uh, hold it in their hearts and they would let it change them in whatever way it needs to change them, Lord. I do pray that you would bless uh, this text to them and, and bless our weeks, Lord, and help us to grow in you and to be reflections of you this, this week. So I just pray for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I am aware that maybe some of uh, this text has really, um, as I said, affected you, and I would just say that some of us will be up on the sides, uh, both sides. So if you want to come and pray about anything, then feel free. But um, God bless you guys, and have a good week. And go and get your kids. <laughs>